0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot
1: Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina, Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, we feature an interview with Ambassador Huang Ping, Consul General of China's New York Consulate. Before we get to the interview, I want to be transparent about the process involved here. The consul general was happy to tape this interview, but in a prior conversation with his press office, I was asked to share my questions with the consulate's team in advance. Uh, I agreed to do that. I'll often do a pre-call with an interview subject to go over general topics and themes, but I don't ordinarily share questions in advance. Nor, however, do I ordinarily have the chance to interview a serving PRC diplomat certainly not one of Ambassador Huang Ping's rank, and uh, certainly not in a time as tense and fraught as this one. So I put together a list that I thought was fair but firm, asking questions about the bilateral relationship that are on the minds of many Americans. Uh, To my surprise, they only asked me to strike one of them I had hoped to ask about the legacy of Ambassador Cui Tiankai, who recently left the United States after the longest posting as Chinese ambassador to the U.S. of of any ambassador, but uh, Ambassador Huang's office said that he'd rather not comment on another diplomat's work, and I thought that was reasonable, and I obliged. To their credit, Ambassador Huang and his colleagues didn't push back at all on questions about Xinjiang, uh, on uh, wolf warrior diplomacy, on Taiwan, and so forth. Uh, However, I am sure that many listeners are going to conclude that his answers were predictable, that uh, he didn't really engage on the difficult questions, and that he stuck pretty doggedly to the party line. Uh, The interview that follows has only been edited for clarity and concision, just taking out filler or hesitation words and such. Next week, Jeremy and I will be talking to Peter Martin, the Bloomberg journalist, who has written a book about the history of Chinese diplomacy since the party's early days in Yan'an. It's called China's Civilian Army, the Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. And as Peter will have listened to this interview by then, we will include some discussion of Ambassador Huang's interview in that conversation, sharing Peter's take, Jeremy's, and, and my own. So please tune in for that episode. Thank you very much, and I uh, hope you find this valuable. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome Ambassador Huang Ping, Consul General of the Consulate of the People's Republic of China in New York. Ambassador Huang previously served as China's ambassador to Zimbabwe and was, prior to that, a consul general of the PRC's Chicago consulate. He has had a long career in the foreign ministry, much of it spent in the United States, stretching back to the late 1980s when he was attache and third secretary at the Chinese embassy in Washington. Ambassador Huang, welcome to Seneca.
1: Thank you, Kaiser. Nice to meet you. Hello, everyone. It's
0: good to be with you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to join me. Ambassador Huang, you have served as Consul General in New York since 2018 and have also spent some years in Chicago, as I said, from uh, 2007 to 2010, I believe. During that time, I imagine you've gotten to know many Americans and have developed quite a sense of this country. Uh, What are some of the things that have surprised you most about Americans?
1: Yeah, when I first came to America in the 80s, I was in my 20s, very young, and uh, that was my first trip abroad. And, uh, you know, I have to get the chance to come to America. So my trip to Washington was quite impressive. I see so many things you have, but we don't have in China. I see the big difference in economic development and uh, culture and, uh, you know, many other things. For example, the uh, supermarket At that time, back in China, we were buying things using a coupon issued by the government. You need to use a coupon to buy almost everything. At that time, China was quite underdeveloped. And also, I saw the highways. At that time, there was no highways in China, not even a mile in China, and quite impressive. And also, I saw cars running on this highway. At that time, in China, bicycles are the main transportation, you know, vehicles. And it was hard at that time for people to think that one day we would be able to have our own cars or driving our own cars to work. Not even able to think about that. There are many other things, like the Hollywood, the movies from Hollywood like the Disneyland, like uh, in sports, the NBA, and baseball, and football, and all those things, uh, Universal Studio, in kind of uh, eating McDonald's, uh <laughs> spa coffee, or even Pizza Hut. By the way, Pizza Hut is my uh, favorite <laughs> fast food from America. So I, I could feel at that time, you know, the gap between China and the US very, very big, In compared with America, we're still quite underdeveloped. And I wish at that time that someday Chinese people would be able to live the same standard of life as Americans do. And my second surprise, or I, uh, I feel so impressed is that we differ a lot American and China in history, in culture, in value, in many other things. But in the same time, we we have a lot of things in common. Mm-hmm. For example, we all want to have a better life. We want to have a good job. We want to send our kids to a better school to let them have a good education. And, you know, we value friendship. And both, on both sides, the people are uh, diligent, and uh, people, you know, open and inclusive, and many other things. Those were there since we share together. So I feel, although we have so we have so many differences, but we are brothers and sisters. We can live together peacefully. Sure. And the third one, third one, I find some very good chances to do business because at that time you have a lot of things we don't have. And we have a huge big market back in China. When I was uh, the consul general uh, in Chicago, I I traveled a lot. When I was sitting in the back of my car, going you know from Chicago to Minneapolis or somewhere Missouri, Kansas, the, the driver just kept driving there. I I was so impressed by the vast land of those uh, corns. Soybeans, corns, and all those things. And, you know, you get, you get tired of that by looking at that all the way. So I fell asleep when I woke up after two hours, still the same. So I, I could measure, you know, how big this land is and how, how much, you know, grain you can produce. And back in China, we didn't even have enough food at that time. So we can buy from you. We can buy from you. And uh, you don't need that much food so you can export it to China. And I also found a lot of interesting things like the NBA. People like basketball that play a little basketball. But uh, you know we don't have a kind of association like the NBA. So I was thinking maybe someday a Chinese player could come to NBA or maybe NBA can go to China. And it's a very good entertainment At the uh, ping pong, huh? You play the big balls, we play little balls. And Chinese is very good at those little balls of ping pong, badminton, all those, and maybe we can do some exchange. And also, Chinese like tea, you like coffee, maybe the Starbucks coffee can go to China. And uh, Chinese cooking is very, very complicated, so and, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, you have to learn, you have to receive the training. But sometimes people get tired of cooking, maybe they need some fast food. So McDonald's can go to China and all those, you know, pizza can go to China and all those things. So we can uh, do business. So that's a win-win cooperation and uh, both sides will be beneficial. So I find lots of chances of doing business together. That's fascinating, yeah. So I I, I immediately, I feel, okay, my job is a very good job. I'm in a very new front and uh, I can do a lot of things to promote this mutual understanding and a win-win
0: cooperation. Well, I certainly agree with you that there are plenty of things that Americans and Chinese have in common. In fact, I think that Americans and Chinese are are very much alike uh, in some of the things that you said, in this kind of fundamental belief that hard work and and application yeah. will get you ahead in life, and uh, this value that they place on family, and a lot a lot of these things that that they have very much in common. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if though if there was anything about the American character, about American people that you weren't prepared for, that surprised you on arriving, that dealing with Americans you found to be challenging, even difficult. You mean this time? No, I mean, across your years here, you've, you've interacted with many Americans. Is there anything about the American character, about American people yeah. that has really surprised or, or, or frustrated you in any way?
1: It's not really a frustrating. I know we have difference, but, you know, we don't know each other very well. Up to now, I can still see this. The strongest impression of me is about this uh, misunderstanding. We really don't know each other as we think we are. When I was in Washington, that was the beginning, and early in the 80s, not many Chinese were here in the 80s, and not many Americans are there in China. So when you must remember, when you're going to China, you know, a is going to China, they will be surrounded by lots of, you know, people on the streets looking at them, you know, curiously. And uh, full of curiosity, say, hey, why they, they don't look like us, you know? Uh, they look differently, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of ways, you know, different. Uh, like Americans, you... Uh, Americans always go very straight. When you have an issue or something, you will speak out. And for the Chinese, we might talk uh, in another way to save face. I hope you understand this. This face is a big issue in China. We don't want to make you embarrassment or something. There are many differences. But I think I think the challenge is how we increase this mutual understanding. That's the most important thing. We know, I know we are great people, we can do a lot of things, but we need to work together to increase this
0: mutual understanding, build this mutual trust. One of the issues uh, around which there is a lot of misunderstanding is around the leadership of China itself, the Chinese Communist Party. The party just observed its 100th anniversary since its founding, um, especially in recent years. I think many people in the United States have really made the, the Chinese Communist Party the focus of a lot of their anger, uh, of their fear, and of their dislike. But my sense is that they don't have a very good idea of what the party is as an organization. How would you try to convey to Americans your own understanding of what the party is?
1: Yes. Uh, America, actually, Americans came to know the Communist Party uh, some 80 80- 85 years ago, when Edgar Snow went to Yan'an, uh, that was, you know, the headquarter of the uh, uh, the Communist Party at that time, and he interviewed Mao Zedong and the many other high rank Communist Party officials, and he published a book, uh, "Red Star Over China." Uh, that was in, I think, 1936. So American people begin to know. A little bit about the Communist Party. The Communist Party, I think, uh, is a great party. It's quite a different party. Lots of people call it CCP, but actually it's wrong. We call it the CPC. Why it is different? Because we want everybody to know that the Communist Party of China, CPC, is independent and a different from any other parties like the Soviet Union, the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Let me tell you, share you with a story. I know American people's understanding of the uh, CPC. Lots of them are from the impression of the the Soviet Communist Party. I once went to a state and and I got a chance to talk with the secretary of the state. And uh, he told me that why he ended up in that state was because his mother worried so much about the safety of him and his brother. In the 50s or 60s, early 60s, when the Cold War was hanging up there, they were in Chicago. So his mother worried too much about that. Someday, a bomb, atomic bomb, will be dropped on that big city, and they had nowhere to hide. So his mother worried too much. She, de- she decided to take the kids to somewhere hiding in the forest. That's why they came to the northwest, northeast part, running away from the uh, the big city like Chicago. At that time, when the Cold War was there, the Communist Party was depicted like some you know evil. Uh, Trying to drop the uh, the bombs, you know, uh, to kill uh, the Americans somewhere. So you get scared about that. But the CPC, I think, it's uh, quite a different party. CPC was founded in 1921 at a time when China was struggling for its survival. It's a party of mission and uh, responsibility. It represents the overall interest of the Chinese people. The mission of this party is quite clear. Three things. Number one was to deliver a better life for the Chinese people. Number two is striving for the rejuvenation of China as a nation. And number three is striving for the common good of the world. Because it's a party representing the overall interest of the people, so they can do a lot of things without worrying about the elections, without worrying about those, you know, your base in election, like you know the situation in many countries which have this multi-party political system. So you see, the CPC kept its promise and has done a great job. Twenty-eight years. After its funding from like 59 people. Only 59 people started this party in 28 years, 1949, they got the People's Republic founded. So, Chinese as a nation stood up. And after that, in the 70 years following that, we uh, you know, achieved lots of uh, achievements you can see now china is the second largest economy and uh, we got uh, 850 million people out of the poverty we are the largest trader in this world we do a lot of things to benefit the people from 1952 to 1980 china's gdp grew 174 times, the per capita GDP has a 70 times increase. So I think that's marvelous. It's it's a kind of a miracle even in human history. And the second thing very, uh, very important is not only we have this fast economic growth, but we have a long time stability, social stability in China, which means you make the cake big, increasing the wealth for the country, but in the meantime, you need to distribute them fairly to the people. It's not an easy job. In China, we've got 1.4 billion people, which means no matter how big this cake is, when you divide them with 1.4 billion people, everybody got a very small share. On the other side, when you have a tiny little problem, when you multiply it with 1.4 billion people, it's going to be a gigantic, a big challenge for you. So to maintain the economic growth together with the fair distribution of this wealth is not an easy job. But uh, the CPC has managed to do this and it has gotten the support of the Chinese people. The second thing, you need to know about the CPC is it's based on the fundamental or basic doctrines of Marxism. But uh, CPC is not just another Marxism. We We don't just copy and paste those doctrines and apply them to China. It won't work. The CPC has been combining those doctrines, the basic doctrines, together with China's reality. And we keep inventing, we keep this practice going. So finally, we got our own theory, we call it the socialism with Chinese characteristics. That's the theory, I think that has enriched the Marxism theory and worked very well in China. You must have heard about this uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous story about the cat, uh, white cat or black cat. There's a big debate. Uh, When we start the opening and the reform, Deng Xiaoping, uh, the people are arguing that uh, whether we should, uh, you know, stay with the planned economy or uh, the market economy from the Western. And Deng Xiaoping said, black or white, so long as the cat catches the mouth, it's a good cat. That's a vivid, vivid way to say, you know, we could be quite uh, flexible. In terms of making the policy, and uh, we we can use both the results of the civilization from east and the west, combine them together, making the work in a better way to improve or to develop China's economy and benefit the people. So you will see the CPC is different from any other party in the capitalist uh, in the Western country. It's not another, it's different from the Communist Party in other countries, and uh, it's quite unique. There's one big thing, if you ask for the secret of the CPC, it's the ability and the courage to face up to its mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, this party makes mistakes too. In history, we made a lot of serious mistakes. Like the Cultural Revolution, like, you know, during the wartime, the leftist, we saw the left mistake and uh, many others. But the CPC has this courage, confidence to face up to it and correct them. Seriously start self-improvement or self-reform so as to stay vibrant and resilient. That's very, very important. It's painful. You know, when you are correcting your mistakes, it's very, very painful. But no matter how painful it is, it's good for your body. So you have to do that. It's like a surgery. You have to, you know, do these surgeries. And the CPC was able to do this. So in general, CPC in the past 100 years, as uh, President Xi, when he delivers uh, his famous speech in Tiananmen Square, And uh, he said this under the CPC's leadership, we have accomplished a lot, you know, the achievement accomplished the first centennial goal of building a society of moderately prosperity in all aspects in China. Now we are marching towards the second centennial goal, you know, with more confidence and uh, I believe uh, you want to understand China, you have to understand uh, CPC. And uh, without a CPC, there will be no new
0: China. So that's quite, quite important. So what is it then that you think so many Americans find to be so threatening about the CPC? Why has it become such a fixation for so many Americans? Why are they so hostile to the party? You've spent a lot of time here in the United States. Give me a sense of how you think American views of China have evolved over the years. If you you look back uh, during the early period of reform and opening, there was a, a lot of, of overt friendliness toward China, as we, we certainly both remember well. Uh, but that has evolved, especially just in, in the, the last decade uh, to quite overt hostility. Uh, we are now in a very difficult period of the relationship. And it's really at moments like this that it's important for each side, I think, to understand the perspectives of the other. So can you put yourself in the shoes of your American counterparts and explain what you think the American perspective is on the U.S.-China relationship, specifically why it's come to view the CPC as so threatening, how the U.S. side thinks the relationship has changed just over the last 10 or 15 years?
1: Yes, I think China and the U.S. established uh, the diplomatic relationship some 40 years ago. But the uh, re-engagement with China started 50 years ago uh, when Dr. Kissinger made his uh, secret visit to China. And we had ups and downs in the past five decades, but we managed to keep this relationship moving towards a healthy and stable way. But in recent years, things have changed. I think this relationship has been deviated from the normal track. The basic reason, I I mean the main reason, is the previous government, uh, I mean the US government, had a misunderstanding of China's future path and its policy. And based on that, the government adopted lots of or have took lots of measures to surprise and attack China. This has caused lots of damage for this bilateral relationship. So right now, to get this relation back on track, I think it's very, very important to start from this understanding. As you said, the misunderstanding about the CBC. Uh, and the misunderstanding of China's uh, intention. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? So I think there are a few things I want to say here. Number one, I think it's the uh, democracy. American people say China is a totalitarian uh, autocracy uh, nation without a democracy. Actually, that's wrong. We believe, Democracy has its own form. Democracy is, is not a kind of a patent only Western countries have. It's, it's a value. It's, a, you know, everybody wants democracy. In China, we have democracy. It's just a different kind of democracy. Whether this democracy is good or not should be judged by whether it works for this country and serve its people. So in China, this democracy is a whole process, we call it a whole democracy. And when those uh, important uh, decisions are making, it has to go through a very careful deliberation and with uh, public you know, opinion, uh, being there, participating, like we did this uh, 14th five-year plan in China. That's very big. And we got millions of recommendations and suggestions from through public opening. So that they got this channel, people can express their point of view on how to make this. So this final decision must be made in a scientific way to guarantee this is a good policy to go. And also this democracy is vastly, I think, the most representative one in China. So it has been working very well. It's a unique type of democracy. But we believe democracy has many types. There is no patent, there is no set model. So you have yours, we have ours. You can use your you can't use your standard to judge whether this is a good democracy or not. This is one thing. And uh, the second is about this human rights. Human rights were always, uh, you know, criticized uh, by, you know, Western countries to say China does not have human rights. Actually, we're committed to the protection of the human rights in many ways. You have to remember China and the U.S. are different in many ways. Uh, we are in the different development stage. China is the largest, largest developing country as a largest developing country, we have to put the subsistence and the development as a paramount importance to the human rights. So you got to feed the people, keep them warm, let them have the money to send their kids to school, and they're doing all those things. And I think we have done a very good job. I just mentioned before that we managed to get 880 million people out of poverty, and now, things in China have improved greatly and I think we have done a great, great job in terms of uh, this human rights. And also, there's a misunderstanding about China's intention to develop, saying China, uh, China's development is a threat to America in many, many ways. But if you see what happened in the past 70 years since the Communist Party came to power, and since the new China was founded in 1947 and 1949, we haven't started or provoked a single war. We, we, we did not take one inch of the foreign land or the land from the foreign country. We always were always committed to the independent foreign policy of peace. So, what we've been doing is to improve people's life, to deliver a better life for the people. We have no intention to replace America. We are competing against ourselves. We want to become a better version of China. We want to, you know, deliver a better life like you have here in China. And I think that's very, very important. And number four, you know, China is uh, is uh, ripping off America, like, you know, lots of people say. That's not true. In the past 40 years, you see this relationship, this good relationship delivered a lot to benefit both sides and the international community. I just want to say the trade reached 630 billion U.S. dollars before the pandemic. Even with the pandemic hanging up there, last year, I mean, 2020, the trade between us is 850 billion US dollars. It's an uprising going up by uh, by more than 80 percent And the, the uh, investment, we started from scratch. Before the pandemic, that number goes up to 230 billion US dollars. Lots of American companies, seventy thousand American companies are right now operating in China. Nobody forces them to to China. They go there because they think it's profitable. They can make money. And lots of Chinese companies are here operating here in my council district. For example, I got the Fuyao. Fuyao, uh, they're making glass. Yeah, they're making glass. But this companies inv- uh, invested, I think, 600 million US dollars and they hired more than 2,000 people in Dayton, in Ohio. Uh, there are other companies like the uh, Nine Dragon Paper Mill in, uh, in Maine, the, the, they started this business there and hired lots of people there. It's a, it's a big news there. And also, CRRC, it's a company making cars, a train, making trains they are making you know, cars for the Boston Origin Line in Springfield Massachusetts. Uh, you know, those were the mutually beneficial, so we always uh, you know, stay on this uh, win-win cooperation, not only with America, but with all the countries. Uh, the BRI, you heard about that Belt Road uh, Initiative? In the seven years since we launched that the BRI program, we have this trade volume going to up to 7.8 trillion US dollars. I mean, this is a trade in goods between China and all the partners. All the partners are there's as BRI. And also, China's investment is 110 billion US dollars. Investment. We built lots of roads, ports, airports, you know, in those developing countries, the poorest countries. I think. Everybody benefited from the BRI. And uh, right now, China is uh, implementing a kind of, uh, we started to, to have a new development, a new version of development. We call it the dual circulation, which means we bring the domestic market and international markets, let them reinforce each other, but with domestic market as a mainstay, this will further open China's market to outside world. And we share this development, the results of this development with all the countries. You heard about uh, Shanghai Expo. We have hosted that successfully for three years. Shanghai Expo is aimed to buy things, to import things. It's not aimed to exporting products from China to the outside world. We hosted that purely for importing to share the Chinese domestic markets with outside world. I think that's a win-win, you know. That's fully demonstrated our commitment to this win-win cooperation. And China also been blamed as uh, being undermined the international order, uh, which is not true. We always uphold the multilateralism. We team up with countries for win-win cooperation, but we're not gaining up <laughs> with countries to form this small block targeting the third party. We support the UN. We want to see the UN play an important role, more important role. We we'll always support them. And China is the second largest contributor in terms of the UN budget and uh, peacekeeping assessment. And uh, we're the largest. Uh, contributor for UN peacekeeping peacekeepers, I mean, in terms of personal, we're the largest contributor. I can give you many, many other things, uh, other examples as examples. I just want to make my points clear that the misunderstanding or misperception about China has made a big, big problem, you know, uh, fanned up by the media here in the Western society. People just don't get this right impression or right perception of China. I think this is dangerous. This is very dangerous. We need to start from...
0: That's not just
1: the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient, comfortable.
0: Ah, this. I think it's encouraging that you're able to enumerate the various points on which the U.S. and, and China differ. You talked about uh, different definitions of democracy, about different priorities when it comes to human rights. You talked about... Uh, uh, allegations of, of China being uh, uh, cheating in, in terms of uh, intellectual property and things like that. You talked about uh, China uh, being disruptive in, in the international order, all these things. I think that you've made some very, very good points, but I also would urge you to recognize that some of these things like definitional problems with democracy, it's going to be very difficult for you to ever convince anyone that democracy that falls short of actual ballot boxes of voting and being able to remove leaders from office through popular vote uh, constitutes democracy. And, you know, you may say that, that, yes, the United States, the West doesn't have a patent on democracy, but I think that that's almost beside the point. You You know, there's, there's, It's going to be very, very difficult to persuade uh, Americans of that. And there's going to continue to persist this very large chasm on a lot of these issues that you've enumerated. Uh, One of the things that you said that I thought was very interesting was that you you seem to place most of the blame on the previous American administration, the Trump administration. And there's no question in my mind that, yeah, there was a lot of disruption to the U.S.-China relationship that happened during the Trump administration. A lot of it was, I think, completely gratuitous and and completely unfair and and very much one sided. What about during the the seven months so far of the Biden administration? How are you feeling so far about uh, how things are progressing now that we have a new party and a new president in office? Uh, To tell
1: the truth, personally, I feel a little disappointed, you know, I was hoping that uh, the, the new administration can correct the wrongs of the previous previous uh, administration. But up to now, after half a year, I think right now the Biden administration hasn't uh, got out of the shadow of the previous uh, administration. China is still being portrayed or being seen as this serious threat or th- serious challenger. Uh, you heard about this divided approach. You say America and China can cooperate in some area, but uh, in most of the area we have to compete against each other and uh, even confront. Uh, we would have confrontation on some areas if necessary. Actually, the uh, basic tune of this uh, uh, right now, the president government is uh, still, uh, I think, I put too much weight on the competitiveness and also the confrontation, which is, is wrong. As I said, China and America were very, very different. But we can manage this difference. From the first day we start this uh, re-engagement or establish the uh, diplomatic relations, we focused on the common interest and the common interest for all the countries. We focused on the common interest, we focused on our responsibilities as a major country should have on their shoulders rather than focusing on these differences. China is not going to change, America is not going to change, you can't change us. We are both major countries. Why should we change? This is quite simple. You have seen China's change in the uh, past uh, you know, 100 years since the Communist Party came to power, and you have seen the great achievements we made, that has proved that the way the Communist Party governs China is right, right? So if we have this right way, why should we change? We will proceed with the right way. I think that's just natural. So there is not going to be a change in terms of the uh, leadership or the governance
0: of China. Understood. From from the Chinese perspective, Taiwan has also uh, always been an issue of paramount importance in the bilateral relationship. But it's also one that many Americans feel very strongly about at a personal level. And it's important, I think, that Beijing should also have a clear understanding of why this issue is of such importance to so many Americans. Can you talk about the American perspective on the issue of Taiwan as you understand it. What's your <laughs> understanding of how Americans perceive Taiwan? Uh, to tell the truth, I don't think many Americans know where Taiwan is.
1: And uh, you know, so I, I, I think I need to start from telling everybody where Taiwan is and how it's a relationship across you know the street and the relation between Taiwan and uh, the mainland. Taiwan, Taiwan is an island so close to the mainland. How close? In the southwestern part of China. The Taiwan street is the widest point is like 200 kilometers. The the narrowest is 130, which is like, uh, you know, in miles, it's just 80 miles in the nearest uh, points. It's 80 miles only, so close. And uh, in culture, Taiwan has a population like uh, 23.6 million. Most of them, 97% of them, were Han nationality in nature. So they are just brothers and sisters. We are from the same family. And in history, Chinese people were the earliest developer of Taiwan, if you see the uh, your check from the history. And starting from Yuan Dynasty, which is 800 years ago, uh, Chinese government started to set up this administrative, you know, bodies in Taiwan to exercise the jurist,
0: uh, juris, uh, how do you see that? A jurisdiction? Over time. Yeah, yeah. But really, I mean, I, I want to ask you more. How do you understand the American perspective on Taiwan? Not, I mean, I think most of us are familiar with the PRC's position, uh, and I don't think it would be a really great use of our time to just repeat you know, the, 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 the Chinese position on uh, why China still lays claims to sovereignty f- on Taiwan. But why do you think it is that, that it's such an important issue for the United States? Why are so many congressmen and senators so committed to the continued defense of Taiwan? Why does uh, did the prior administration and continuing in this administration, does it seek to seem to, to want to change the status quo on Taiwan, what do you think is driving American policy on Taiwan? In other words, and why are so many Americans so sort of emotionally committed to uh, to the preservation of Taiwan's uh, de facto, if not de jure, autonomy?
1: Yeah, Americans. They should. I think they should have a clear. Uh, from from my uh, understanding, many Americans. They don't know the history of Taiwan. They don't know the relationship between the mainland and the, the Taiwan. Uh, they don't even know Taiwan is part of China. It's, you know, a land noble part of China. They think they're protecting a country. They are doing the right thing. But for some politicians, I think they, uh, they know the things, you know. Uh, there, but uh, why they do that? They just want to uh, use Taiwan as somewhere out of their own political uh, agenda. So th- this is uh, confusing by many Chinese. We believe Taiwan is a purely an internal affair of China. Why should Americans put their hands, put your hands to meddling in this internal affairs? Of China
0: okay let 's move on from the issue of Taiwan. Something that I think has been largely absent from American understanding is how the last year and a half since the outbreak of covid nineteen has felt from the Chinese perspective. I know i 've been asking you a lot to talk about your understanding of the American view on some of these contentious issues, but I think it 's really important that Americans have a sense of what it has felt like for Chinese people to watch how the pandemic has unfolded to hear. The rhetoric that came out of the Trump White House, you know, using racial epithets, using all these things, uh, to be blamed for the outbreak of the pandemic. Even you know, today we're still seeing all this this discussion about the so-called lab leak theory. What should Americans know about how it has felt for Chinese people to watch this happen over the last eighteen months, to experience this, to be blamed?
1: You know, since the pandemic broke out, Chinese government has taken all the necessary steps to quickly uh, control this disease and uh, to restore this economy. I think we have done a very good job, but in the meantime, we have been working with the international community, the WHO, on you know uh, how to uh, uh, prevent this disease from spreading or over how to contain them. I think we have uh, fulfilled our commitment as a responsible major country, but uh, China's efforts uh, has not been fully appreciated and uh, recognized uh, by the U.S. We're being accused, uh, you know, in many ways uh, with slandering and, uh, you know, I don't have to see all those things. Uh, I, I think they're wrong. People just don't understand this. So we urge the U.S. government to, to stop, you know, using this pandemic as a kind of a, a issue to slandering China, to attack China, and to do all those things to harm the bilateral relationship. This is a crucial time. I think uh, the virus is a common enemy of everybody, uh, all the countries. We need to work together. Scapegoating China would not help solve the problems. So right now we are facing the challenge of the pandemic and also the economy, economic recovery and together with some other big issues like the climate change and many other things. So we need to work together rather than attacking each other. As to the lab leaking theory, uh, I think the WHO has sent you know, two patches of experts to China, uh, especially the recent one in January. Uh, the uh, WHO sent uh, the, uh, a joint team. Uh, the experts came from many countries, including America, uh, to China to conduct the research for 28 days. And uh, in early March, I think they uh, published the report saying that the lab leak is extremely unlikely. They call for the uh, more attention to the uh, early cases globally. And also the role of the cold chain and the frozen food uh, in the transmission of these viruses. I think uh, this is a scientific issue. which we, sh- we need to stop politicizing this issue. Let the scientists do the job. This uh, administration's way to ask the intelligence department to do the investigation, I think is uh, totally wrong. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about a very difficult question now about Xinjiang and uh, what Beijing calls the re-education centers. Now this issue has, over the last three years, grown into something really contentious in the the bilateral relationship. The U.S. has used the term genocide, as have some key U.S. allies. The Department of Commerce has a long and growing list of Chinese companies that are being sanctioned for their alleged role in the internment of Uyghurs and other Muslims and it just added 23 more companies to the so-called entity list. The Chinese side has you know, predictably accused the U.S. of meddling in what it regards as an internal affair, yeah. has pointed to American hypocrisy uh, and has denied many of the atrocities of which it stands accused. But the issue only seems to loom larger. Now we have a threat of an Olympic boycott that seems to be growing. Many Americans... Uh, with deep personal ties to China, who are very empathetic to China, who sincerely hope for improved relations between China and the United States, are nonetheless highly critical of Beijing's policies in Xinjiang. I would certainly include myself in that category. Hmm. There are many, many people like me. What would you tell people like me who want better U.S.-China relations, who care very deeply about China, who see the Chinese view on many issues, but cannot get behind Beijing's policies in Xinjiang. And, and tell me what you think is a possible resolution of this. There are lots
1: of uh, lies here fabricated by some, some people with their own political agenda. Uh, there are a few issues here. Let me do one by one. Uh, first uh, is the uh, concentration camp, the so-called concentration camp. I don't think... This is the right way to see the uh, vocational education and the training center as a concentration camp. I don't want to see that myself. I can uh, quote an expert uh, called uh, Graham Perry. Graham Perry is an arbitration lawyer and a China expert in United Kingdom. He said that the word genocide or the concentration camp evokes images of the systematic mass murder of six million Jews of Nazi concentration camps. But in Xinjiang, there is no evidence. There are no killing camps, mass graves, crematoria, death squads. Streams of refugees, chaos at borders, mass mass execution, or victim killing by falling into their self-dug barrel pits—the image of the Nazi genocide in World War II at Auschwitz and other concentration camps.
0: No, So I certainly would agree that I I don't use the word genocide myself for exactly that reason because I think that it's heavily loaded, that it does evoke something. I think that it should be left in reserve as the most, right, Mm -hmm. something truly beyond the pale. I'm persuaded by that argument. But just looking at what we know exists, so we we do know that there are these extra-legal, involuntary, uh, camps into which people are uh, coerced and forced to undergo, you know, patriotic education, re-education, vocational skills training, uh, Mandarin language. So w- what about that? I mean, even that itself, I- I've been very careful. I always avoid using words like genocide <laughs> or even concentration camp. But uh-
1: So as, as I said, there's no genocide, no, not single... Uh, the, the evidence to prove that there's a genocide or something there, it's just the slandering. As for the uh, Vacational and Education Training Center, I think this, these centers are set by the law. They are the uh, measures provocative and the preventive de-radicalization to counter terrorism measures. Aimed at targeting the terrorism and the religious extremists, they are the same as the DPP. You you heard about that in UK. The DPP is a de and a disengagement program, and the de-radicalization centers in France. They are all, all, almost the same, and uh, I see these uh, centers as a campus rather than camps. We. We get these people there to be educated. And uh, this this has been quite effective in terms of counting the terrorism and uh, in uh, de-radicalization. Up to now, there's no single terrorist attack in executive, like four years, there's no cases occurred in four years. In Xinjiang, I think it's very important you understand uh, it's a very big province or autonomous area in China It, it takes you know one sixth of its territory, very very big and I think to address this area, it's a western province or area, and uh, the economic development there is not that good. so we have been focusing on you know the economic development. And I think we have done very well. In the past uh, 60 years, we have managed to raise the uh, life expectancy of the people. I mean, all the people, including the uh, ethnic group people, Uyghurs included, uh, from 30 to 72. Their life expectancy doubled in the past 60 years. And their GDP goes up to increase the 160 times And the per capita GDP is 30 times from 1955 to 2020. So I think to counter terrorism or to do the de-radicalization, you have to address uh, these root causes. The way, the reason why we set up these schools or the campuses, uh, I, I mean the recreational education and the training center, is to wipe out this breeding ground for terrorists. You you need to educate the people to obey the law, right? Killing is a crime. But isn't it the case terrorist to- attack is a crime. And also you need to equip them with skills so they can find a good job.
0: They can start a business. I think that if 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 you were only if if you were only interning people who had committed acts of of terrorism? If you had only included people who had, uh, you know, made public expressions of support for separatism or uh, something like that, that would p- perhaps be different. I think maybe you would come in for less criticism. But there are people yeah. who are only are in there only because of foreign travel. There are people in there who only are in there because of. Uh, religious expressions of religiosity, of of their Islamic faith, uh, and who have no criminal record, who have done nothing illegal, and who are nonetheless being coerced into these camps, though. Is is that not true? Uh, It's not true. We, We educate the people so they know they
1: need to obey the law, we educate the people, uh, teach them, you know, how, uh, uh, equip them with the skills so they can find a good job. That's a very good thing. And uh, so I think it's quite necessary. You talk about this religious belief. You know how many mosques in Xinjiang? In America, you have only 2,000. In Britain, 170, uh, I think 1,075. Something like that. But in Xinjiang, it's 24,400, which means every 530 people has a mask. So I think that tells a lot of. And also, we recently published a white paper detailing all the things the Chinese government has done to improve the situation, to protect their rights, like uh, you know they guarantee the religious belief, and the diversity of a spoken and written language, almost a ten different kind of language of those ethnic uh, minority people use there are being used in school in teaching and in radio programs and uh, women's rights are especially uh, have special attention and uh, very well uh, protected. There are many things like that. I hope you know you can uh, uh, go to Xinjiang someday to see by yourself. Xinjiang is open? Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, Xinjiang is open. I hope you can go there to see with your own eyes. Uh, not just you know uh, looking at the, the, or, or get this information from this disinformation fabricated by those people who have their political agenda. And uh, there's another issue called the forced labor, right? right? You heard a lot about this. Uh, U.S. even, you know, imposed sanctions on that. And uh, I want to say that there is no forced labor there. People can choose uh, whatever the job they want to do, uh, do it or not, it's on their own will. And they can just sign the contract and their interest can be protected by law and they can enjoy the results. Of fruits of their labor. And I know lots of people know that Xinjiang produces lots of cottons. And they say we use forced labor in cotton picking seasons, which is also not true. Do you know, do people know that 100% of the cotton plant in Xinjiang and 70% of the cotton picking are all done by machinery? by machinery rather than human labor. And there are many, many, I mean, people from outside Xinjiang to go to Xinjiang to help pick in the cotton. Why? Because you got a good pay for that. That's a very hard job, you know, to do. So people from outside Xinjiang, other provinces are going to Xinjiang seasonally to pick this and to get a good pay. There's no forced labor. At
0: all. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador Huang.
1: So those were those were not true, and uh, I really hope you know you can go there. Uh, people can travel in Xinjiang uh,
0: with no problem. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Huang. Your consular mission in New York and uh, China's diplomats in the U.S. more generally have faced. Real challenges as the tone of Chinese diplomacy has shifted, especially in the time since the pandemic broke out. It's become common to speak of wolf warrior diplomacy. is what they've called it, uh, which has been, as I understand it, a, a, a source of controversy within the Chinese diplomatic community. Uh, what are you able to say about the rise of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy? And, and how much are you able, as a representative of your government, to set your own tone in the way that you engage with the public.:
1: I must say that uh, China always follows a principle, uh, independent foreign policy of peace. And Chinese nation has been widely accepted as a nation of uh, moderation. Moderation, be modest, be modest. So aggressiveness is not our tradition at all. So we follow this. China is a nation. We uh, we put our foreign policy in the five thousand years of our history and the culture. China is a nation value peace, value harmony, sincerity and integrity. We never pick a war. We never pick a fight or bully anybody. But having said that, we have bones. We have principles, we have guts. So when the national interest, the dignity, and all those in the honor and the dignity being deliberately insulted or attacked or slandered as the diplomats of this nation, we will push back. We, I think we have this right to push back and to tell the truth about what has been happening. If you look at all those accusations on those issues recently happening, you heard lots about China's, uh, China's diplomats as a wolf warrior. Can you tell me which one or uh, what time is, you know, because of China's provocation? We never started this quarrel. We never interfere with other people's internal affairs. So you have to take a look at, you know, who caused this. I think that. That is very important. Yeah, I
0: think insofar as and as who started it, I think it's fair to say that even people like Zhao Jian were were in response to uh, things that were said from the uh, presidential podium. And, and yeah, I, I that that I do I, insofar as, as that I do agree with you. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think this is another just another version of a China threat. It's a tailor made kind of a discourse trap. Uh, by labeling this wolf warrior on on China, that will make China just to stay back rather than fighting back. You you must remember what Chairman Mao said: uh, We are not going to attack if we are not attacked. But when we are attacked, we have to count attack, fight back. China is a major nation. And I think we have uh, this responsibility to defend our national interest and uh, national honor, dignity, and all of this. We also have the, the right to tell the truth uh, to safeguard the international justice and the fairness. That's what we have been doing as a major country. I think we have this sure. responsibility.
0: Okay, Ambassador Huang, during the last two years of the Trump administration, and especially during the final year, we saw, as we've talked about, a lot of actions taken against China, often provoking reciprocal responses from Beijing. In this long litany of issues, it seems to me that at least some of these could be fairly easily reversed and and that such moves might help to lower the temperature. Uh, My sense is that Beijing would still like to see the temperature lowered, and I hope I'm right. Uh, What are some of the relatively easier first steps that both sides could take toward a lowering of the temperature? I'm thinking about maybe things like student visas or uh, the Peace Corps and Fulbright programs returning to China, or maybe restoration of journalist visas, or perhaps the reopening of the Houston and Chengdu consulates. Is any of this possible? Is any of this under discussion? Uh, what would you like to see prioritized? Uh, yes. China wants to have a good relationship with America.
1: As we have, uh, we have learned from the past history of opening up and the reform, we know we have to become a part of the world. We have to open our door and work together with the international community to further develop our country. So that's that's why we want to have this good relationship with everybody, especially America. It will be crazy for us. We want to further develop ourselves, and we will come to challenge the most powerful you know, country in the world. It's not logical. So we see we want to develop this relationship with America, uh, featuring... Uh, non-conflict, non-confrontation, mutual respect, and a win-win cooperation. This was our policy towards America. This is our policy towards America. This will be, you know. It's consistent, never changed from the day when we had this good relationship. We still want to do that, but right now there are so many disturbances and distortions So I think uh, to further develop this relationship, there are a few things we need to do together. The first is the the mutual respect and not to interfere with each other's uh, uh, internal affairs. I think this is uh, the norm governing international relations. As a major countries, China and the U.S., we need to, to do the same. China is a big country, America is a big country, We have different ways to develop our country and nobody's going to change the other. China does not, we have no intention to replace America. We have no intention to be the number one or to dominate uh, the world. We have no intention, we're not seeking the hegemony because we know that hegemony will lead to failure. This is a wisdom, Middle Indian old wisdom of Chinese culture. So we're not doing that. We just want to have a good relationship so we can coexist peacefully uh, with everyone. So we hope that America will respect China's core interest not to interfere China's internal affairs. So we never interfere with American uh, internal affairs. We hope American will do the same. And America will stop slandering the Communist Party of China and China's political system. That's one thing. So we can uh, gradually build up, build up the mutual trust. The second important thing is to enhance the dialogue and uh, properly manage our difference. As I said, we are different in many ways but this should not prevent us from working together. We should base this relationship on cooperation, women cooperation, rather than on these differences. The door of China for dialogue is always open, and uh, we hope that America will do the same for us. The third one is to move in the same direction and restart the cooperation. As you just suggested, there are so many things we can do together. And as major countries, we have this responsibility to work together. Right now, is fighting this pandemic, and uh, you know, revive this economy, and uh, dealing with you know issues like climate change and uh, you know regional spots. There are so many things we can do together. We should have the list of this cooperation and uh, you know start working immediately and the fourth one i think is very important is to clear the path for the resumption of bilateral exchange in all the areas you have mentioned a lot like the student visa recently 500 students couldn't get the visa to come to study and the uh, there are many many restrictions many many restrictions. we should move this to let the people to people exchange or the people people flow uh restart it. I think this will help building up this mutual trust and help to 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 pull this relationship uh, back to the normal track
0: ambassador huang it's it's a real honor to be able to speak to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to join me on The Seneca Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for giving me this chance. I enjoyed the conversation with you. And I hope, you know, someday we can meet, that we can have a face-to-face talk together.
0: I look forward to that. Thank yeah. you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Bye-bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.